Okay, as our custom, let's stand and read the Word of God. Beginning in verse 1. Now, as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come, just like a thief in the night. While they are saying, Peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you also are doing. Please be seated. Well, as you can tell by our reading this morning, uh, today we're going to be looking at the second coming of the Lord, known in Scripture as the Day of the Lord. Now, the reason I want to talk to you about this uh, this morning is because of our men's and women's Bible studies we've been having as we've been going through the book of Acts. In the early chapters of Acts, we've seen important themes emerge, uh, such as the importance of the resurrection and how Christ's death was not a sign of his defeat, but actually a victory and was a fulfillment of prophecy and within the Lord's plan. But another theme emerged that I think is a really significant, and that is that Luke talks a lot about the believer's hope in the Lord's return. The believer's hope in the Lord's return. And Luke makes it clear, this is when all things are going to be restored. This is when Christ's kingdom is fully going to come and be established on earth. The effects of the curse are reversed, and you experience His presence in fullness. So yes, do you have the Holy Spirit now as a deposit? We do. But that's not gonna, it's not the same as when we have the Lord in fully in His presence. But that's something reserved for the future. Now this theme of the Lord's return is pervasive throughout the New Testament. I learned a couple of new things this week that I want to share with you this morning. Did you know there are 260 chapters in the New Testament and over 300 times the Lord's return is mentioned. That means that if you read every chapter in the New Testament you're probably going to discover the Lord's return at least once if not more than that every time you read it. Did you know that? That shows you where the New Testament writer's mindset is in terms of what they're hoping for and what they're thinking about. But you know what's really cool about this too? If I were to ask you, what's the definition of a Christian? I know what I would expect to hear. Well, you're someone whose sins have been forgiven. Right? Someone who's turned to serve the living God. Well, I'm going to read you 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. This is Paul speaking. Um... I want, uh, they have themselves have reported about what kind of reception we had with you 
and how you've turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. So there it is. A Christian is someone who turns from their old way of life and now serves a living God. Listen to verse 10. And to wait for his son from heaven. <laughs> they've, they've heard about you, how you've turned to serve a living God, and how you wait for the return of God from heaven. Interesting and very significant definition of a believer. Now, from what I know of you, I don't think I need to convince you about the Lord's return. From what I know of you, I, you believe He is coming. But the question I want to address this morning is, how is He coming? How is He coming? You see, there's a common belief within the Christian circles that when Jesus comes for us, He's going to come for us like a thief in the night. Because Paul says it right here in 1 Thessalonians. And Peter says it in his second letter, in chapter 3. But Jesus says it. Jesus says it in Matthew 24. He says, I'm coming as a thief in the night. Just like it was in the days of Noah, I'm coming. This is a common thought about how he's coming for us as, as his believers, as his bride. Worship songs have even been written about this. I want to show you uh, the worship song of a band called Leland and their understanding of the second coming. Great is your love and your faithfulness. It's your faithfulness that carries me. Many times I've run away, forsook your love and all your grace. Still you call out my name. Yeah, you still care that I save. I'll be saved. And so I'll sing the glories of your name, your awesomeness I will proclaim until you come, until you come. And take your bride away like a thief in the night, like a thief in the night, you'll take us away. Here's a question. Is that what the Bible really teaches? Is that how Jesus is coming for us? Well, let's find out from Thessalonians. The Thessalonians were ones who were waiting in eager anticipation for the Lord's return. Chapter 1, verse 9 and 10 has already determined that. They're waiting for the Lord. So they're a model to us in terms of their mindset towards God. At the same time, they had misunderstandings around the details of the Lord's return. And many of them were anxious and had major concerns. In fact, Paul even says many were grieving over some of the questions they had regarding the Lord's return. And so Paul in chapter 4, before he gets to chapter 5, has dealt with one major question for them. The question has been this. What happens to believers who have died before Christ comes back? So, in their mindset, those who were alive when the Lord returns, they believed what would happen to them. They would go to glory and experience all the promises of heaven and get to be with Him. But they didn't know what happened to those who would die before the Lord's return, and they were terrified of the consequences of that. You could imagine that, right? Imagine, like, the anxieties of thinking you're stuck in the ground forever. <laughs> like, you've worshipped and given your life to the Lord, enduring persecution, and when He comes back, you don't get to experience that? It'd be terrifying if you had that mindset. But that's what's going on in their mind. And so Paul gives them an answer. And he provides them huge amounts of relief. He says, not only do you not miss out, you get priority in the resurrection. You go first. If you're dead and Jesus returns, you rise first. Then those who are alive will come next. So you can imagine the words of comfort to go, wow, like not only, not only am I not forgotten, I get priority in terms of the resurrection. 
I get to join Abraham and Moses and David and Rahab and all these people and get to go to glory with them at the same time. And so Paul in verse 18 of chapter 4 says, Therefore comfort one another with these words. What comfort that would be if you had that anxiety. So with the question in chapter 4 now being answered, Paul moves into chapter 5 and continues with the same theme. He's not switching subjects. He's continuing the same theme. What, how do we understand the details of the Lord's return? And he says in verse 1, Now as the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. These times and epochs that he's referring to is something we've also seen in Acts as a men's and women's Bible study. Do you remember in uh, Acts chapter 1, the disciples say to, uh, oh, that Jesus says to the disciples, go to Jerusalem and wait for me there because I'm going to um, bring the Spirit to you. And the disciples turn to him and say, is this the time you're going to uh, establish the kingdom on earth? And he said, it's not for you to know the times or epochs by which the Father is affixed by his own authority. So again, the, the, the context of times and epochs in chapter 1 is the restoration of the kingdom, the, the coming of Jesus and to establish his new heaven and new earth. And so with this idea in mind, we have the same picture here in 1 Thessalonians 5. The times and epochs, of course, are a reference to the day of the Lord, the time of the restoration of the kingdom. And Paul says this, you have no need of any further instruction on this. You know about this. So clearly, probably when he church planted years earlier, he had, and he had spent some time there, he probably taught them all about these things while he was with them. And so he says, there's nothing else I really have to add to this, but I just want to remind you of what you already know. So I'm helping you just, just bring to recollection everything I taught you in the past. And central to this theme of what they were to recall was this idea that Jesus was going to come like a thief in the night. Now, I'm just going to pose a question to you. If I told you someone was coming to your house in the next month to be a thief, do you see that in a positive context or a negative context? <laughs> Obvious answer, negative. Why? A thief is coming to do what? To do you harm. Not to do you good. But it's like a thief in the night, so unexpected. We don't know when he's I'm going to address all that. Yeah, good question. But, who's it but even still, he's coming like a thief in the night for who? The bride? So either way, it's unexpected, but who's it coming for? So, but when you hear him coming for like a thief in the night, you think negative. They want to do you harm, not do you good. Because their MO is to come in secret, to come in stealth mode unexpectedly without warning. But when you hear that definition alone, it should leave us scratching your head going, how does that make sense in terms of Jesus coming for us? Well, Paul spells it out in verse 3. He says, while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that that day would overtake you like a thief. Who are the they? Who are the they that, that Jesus is coming back like a thief in the night for? Not the bride, not the church. He says that day will not overtake you. He says he's coming to those who say peace and safety, and then destruction will come upon them. 
So when he comes back as a thief, he's coming back for those, or he's coming to bring judgment upon those who've rejected him, but not for his church. Not for his church. Because this is such an important topic, I want to talk to you about the Lord's Day and His coming judgment. And I want to highlight four things that are a couple in the text and a couple outside the text, but they're, they're significant to understand. I first want to define what this destruction means. What, is, what does He mean by He's coming back and he will, um, then destruction will come upon Him like a woman in labor? There are two realms in which destruction occurs when the Lord returns to bring judgment. One is the physical realm, and one's the spiritual realm. So let's take a look at the, the physical realm first. Peter says this, By his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly people. Then he says in verse 10, The day of the Lord will come like a thief, the heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. So when he talks about the destruction coming here, he's going to burn up with fire, literal fire, the earth and the heavens. Interestingly, in these same verses, he talks about the flood being the destroyer of the world originally. So when God says this, he put a rainbow in the sky and says, I will never judge the world ever again in this way. He didn't mean he wouldn't bring judgment in the future. He meant I won't destroy the world with water again. Not, he wouldn't destroy the world, period. It was with water. Just a sidebar, those people who worry about global warming, and that if we get the environment too hot, the water's going to rise and flood the world, if you're a Christian, you don't even think in those categories. Amen. Because global warming is an impossibility. He promised with the rainbow, he would never flood the world. <laughs> anyway, it's a side tangent. But he will come with fire. He says, and he'll burn up the world and start over. So the physical, the physical nature of creation and the human body will be burned up for those who rejected the Lord. But what about the spiritual? The spiritual. Spiritual is a bit complicated in that destruction doesn't mean eternal death. It doesn't mean the end of something. Like if I physically destroy a tree, it's done. But destruction in the Bible still has eternal consequences. It's spiritual separation from the Lord. And Daniel chapter 2, 12-2 is a really important text. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting shame, and others to shame and everlasting contempt. So it's eternal in nature. Death in the Bible is primarily understood as separation from God, to be, to be separated. That's why when he said, uh, Satan says, you will not surely die to Adam and Eve. You will not die. He was primarily thinking in the spiritual realm. And what did God do? He separated himself when it happened. However, to me, this is one of the probably there's two main things I want to get across to you today, and this is one of them. I want you to understand God's heart, even in the midst of destruction, even in the midst of divine retribution. I want you to know God's heart. When I was taking my course in Revelation, I was given. I could write about whatever I wanted in four different areas. I could pick any four topics that I wanted, and I could hand them in as my essays to my teacher. You know what I picked? 
God's heart towards the lost, even in the midst of divine retribution. Did you know that even when he handing, he's handing out justice, he wants the people in the justice to repent and turn to him? That's his heart? Check this out in Revelation. But the people who did not die in these plagues still refused to repent of their evil deeds and turn to God. They continued to worship demons and idols made of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that could neither see nor hear nor walk, and they did not repent of their murders or witchcraft or sexual morality or their thefts. Consider 16, 9. Everyone was burned by the blast of heat and the cursing of God who had control over these plagues. They did not repent of their sins and turn to God and give Him glory. God is like bringing justice on the world for, for in, in just like in, 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 um, and for good measure, the people have persecuted his people. The, the, the martyrs in heaven are crying out, God, bring justice, bring justice. How long until you bring justice? And he brings justice. But even in the midst of justice, he's saying the justice had a purpose. It was not only to, to, to bring retribution, it was actually to bring a turn of heart towards him. So when people saw the justice coming from heaven, they'd say, there must be a God and I must serve him. This is incredible. Incredible picture of the Lord. This is why in 2 Peter 3.9, which is the text surrounding the whole burning of fire and the flood, he says this, God is, um, wants none to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And then he goes, and that's why he said he's patient towards you. He's slow to bring judgment. Like there's some people in the church who have asked me this before. The world's a mess. How much brighter can it get? Why doesn't God bring judgment now? My answer, because God wants a bigger family. <laughs> he wants a bigger family. He doesn't bring justice now because he's slow to bring judgment. Because he wants, a, he wants as many people to come into the kingdom as possible. He says, my house has many mansions. He wants to fill them. So many of you might have loved ones right now who are not following the Lord. And you might think, my heart breaks for them. What am I going to do? Know this. Even in the last days, right before the second coming, if God's bringing retribution on this world, know that He will be a God of mercy and change His heart towards those individuals if they will turn to Him and repent. So if someone literally ends up separated from God in the final days, it has nothing to do with God's heart. It's purely because of the heart of the person and their absolute refusal to, to worship Him and love Him. This is an incredible picture of a God of mercy. He's a God of second chances right up to the dying breaths of the last person. There's still a chance to know Him and to be with Him in glory until that last breath is gone. But you have to be willing to bend the, your will to His. And that's the heart of God in the midst of wrath. Now what's the world's attitude towards Him? Well, in verse 3, they're saying, peace and safety, peace and safety. They believe that everything is going to be good. So as the Christian community is going around saying to people, you know, there is a Jesus in heaven who's coming back and, and there is going to be one day judgment. The attitude of the people is this, well, you're, you're a lunatic. 
There's nothing to fear. When my wife and I were on our anniversary this weekend in Calgary, we went out for dinner and uh, we went to this restaurant and uh, I looked around the four walls to see what it was decorated with and there was no writing on the walls. There was, there was nothing except uh, just sort of like pictures and whatnot, except in one corner I saw this sort of like felt banner. You know when you were in high school and you used to get those for a track and field or something, those little cheesy felt banners and you'd hang them up, and, and, you know, but anyway. Uh, there was one felt banner, it was only writing in the whole restaurant, and it said, No God, no master. I know the heart of that man or woman who owns that restaurant. The only thing you have to say in this world, in a public restaurant, is there's no God and no master? That's all you have to declare? I know if I was in there and he saw me with my Bible open and we had a conversation and said, there's a Jesus in heaven that's coming back to judge sin, but he's got an offer of mercy. He would say, peace and safety, Andrew, peace and safety. <laughs> Interesting. The last thing I want to talk about the day of the Lord is, is really the timing of his return. He says, for those who are unbelievers, who have rejected him, he's coming back like, like a thief. In that it's going to be unexpected and come without warning. But what about us? Back to your question, Paula. What about us? Didn't Jesus himself say in Matthew 24 and verse 36, that regarding the day, of our, day or hour of his return, that no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So if Jesus doesn't even know when the return is happening, how can we possibly know? So isn't it unexpected for us too? Yes and no. Yes, it's unexpected in that we don't know the exact time and day. So I can't say to you, March 18th of 2022 at 11.30 p.m., he's coming. I can't say that. But the answer is yes. Or yeah, yes, we can know in to some degree. You see, Christ's return is not imminent like some believe, where we're going to get caught off guard. The Bible teaches that certain events in history have to precede the Lord's return. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 1. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of the Lord Jesus and our gathering together in him, with him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a messenger or a letter as if it was to say to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every soul called God or object of worship and takes a seat in the temple. Later on, he says he will perform signs and wonders like God. See what he's saying? Thessalonians, you're really concerned about the second coming, aren't you? Yeah, we are. Well, I've answered the question about uh, those dead and, and dead in the ground, what happens to them. But just so you know, there's another reason why you haven't missed it. Events in history have to unfold before he comes back. So... In terms of our lives and Christians, someone comes up to you and says, Evie, you know, you got to wake up, girl. Like, the, the, the Lord could come tomorrow. My response would be, actually, that is not true. There's some things in history that have to occur. And they're like, like what? 
Read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. After those things come into place, now the Lord's return is imminent. He could come at any moment because those things are in place. <laughs> okay? So this is really important to help you. I mean, remember, and I'm not making fun of anybody, but worship bands are writing songs about this stuff, and we're singing them. So we have to get our theology right in terms of how this all lays out. So let's get back to our text. Paul had just told the Thessalonians then to recall what they'd previously known about the times and epochs of the Lord's return. And that when he comes, he's going to come like a thief to bring judgment upon those who rejected him. But then he goes on in verse 4 to say this, you don't have to fear that. You don't have to fear that. Look at it with me in verse Thessalonians 5, verse 4. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, but the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of a day. We are not of night nor of darkness. This reference to light and day and darkness and night is just Paul's metaphorical language to describe the differences between belonging to two kingdoms. You can belong to the Satan's kingdom or you can belong to the Lord's kingdom. A really great cross-references is in John, and I put them up here for you. Look what uh, Jesus says of himself in reference to light and darkness and daytime and nighttime. John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And in John 11, he says, Are there not 12 hours in the day? Anyone who walks the daytime in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It's when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. So we have a contrast between the two kinds of kingdoms. We have that belongs to the devil, and we have those that belong to the Lord. And Paul's point was really this. I want to bring you comfort, Thessalonians and Genesis House, because those of you who are in Christ, who are children of the day, children of the light, have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. You can rejoice in the fact that when he comes as a thief, it will not overtake you. But Paul also makes it clear that even though we have this certainty and hope, doesn't mean we're to mentally check out and to kind of get lazy in our Christian walk. Notice what Paul says in verse 6. So then, so with this reality, he's coming back. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, this hope of salvation. So just like he did earlier, where he was contrasting night and day and darkness and light, he's contrasting two spiritual realities again. He's saying, on one side, you can either be on the drunkenness and sleeping side of spirituality. On this side, you can be on the sober and alert side. These are the two options. And he says this. Um, really, they're contrasts. They're contrasts, again, of one's spiritual awareness. I mean, think about it. Those who are drunk and asleep, what's their MO? They're basically inactive. They're out of it. They don't have no awareness of what's going on around them. They're basically in a spiritual comatose. They're in a perpetual spiritual slumber party. They're not thinking about the Lord's coming at all. 
It's not even on their radar. They're unaware, they're insensitive to these things. And their mind is focused on the momentary pleasures of what the world has to offer. On the flip side, to be sober and alert is to be attentive. To be aware, to be awake, to be watchful, and so on. But Paul's reminder to the Thessalonians is a good reminder to us, though. Because even though we're sons and daughters of the light, according to this passage, how easy is it for us to get into patterns of spiritual sleepiness? You know, he calls us to wear a particular kind of armor here. It's an analogy of Roman armor. Virtues bound up in Christ, faith, love, and hope. But how often do we wear pajamas instead of armor? Spiritual pajamas. When we get, we actually are asleep as opposed to being alert in spiritual realities in the parties and kingdom. Like, you know, I'll just put myself in the chopping block with maybe some of you <laughs> and how we wrestle through the Christian walk, but how many times has it been on our conscience to be devoted to prayer? How many times have it been on our conscience to, to be devoted to our time with the Lord in terms of reading His Word? How many times has it been on our hearts that He's revealed to us that we have unforgiveness in our lives that needs to be dealt with? How many times has He basically pointed out a neighbor or a friend that we need to spend time with and evangelize to to bring them into the kingdom? How many times has He realized that maybe we're struggling with anger or bitterness and we lose our temper all the time and, and the Lord wants to get a hold of us? And yet... We put, the pre we put those realities and the things he's calling to on the sidelines. There's always pressure on us to put the priorities of the kingdom on the sidelines. We know what we should do or what we want to do, but God gets second, third, or fourth choices. Everything else gets put in this place. Those of us in the men's houseboat retreat that we go every year on, we know this, right? How many times we sat around the fire, first night of the retreat, 40, 50 guys around the fire, loving the swaps, and every year, one or two men stand up and say the same thing. I'm really glad I'm here because this is a spiritual reset for me for the year, where I can get my mind back on the Lord and the things of the Lord. And I'm not making fun of that comment. What I'm just saying is so many men come there recognizing that they were in a spiritual slumber party for the whole year or for a month. And they're hoping that they can revive and put on the armor of God for the Holy War that's about to come that year. So again, Paul's words are really important for us to think through. But Paul also says this. If you stay attentive and you live out these virtues, there's incredible rewards on the other end. Look at verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with Him. Paul's emphasis here is if you, if you endure these things and you live out these realities, you'll obtain the salvation that God has promised you. But here's the key, so that you can live with Him forever. I've said this so many times from the front, in the eight years of ministry, heaven and the new earth 
The New Testament writers make it pervasive. Every time, it's about being with Jesus Christ. Do I want the escape of physical disease or pain I'm going through or suffering? Yeah, I want that. Am I looking forward to that? Yep. Am I looking forward to the loss of pain or the emotional and relational hurts that I have with different people? Yeah, I'm looking forward to escaping that. Am I looking forward to talking to my Auntie Anne who died two years ago of MS? I'm looking forward to talking to her again. But that's not what the focus of heaven is in the Scriptures, church. It's about being with Jesus Christ. Why? Paul says it. You obtain salvation in verse 10 because he died for us. <laughs> the reason you get to escape physical pain, disease, emotional heartache, see your grandmother again, talk to your auntie, all those things is because he put his life on the cross as a substitute for sin for you and for me. Those realities are impossible without a sacrifice for you. That's why heaven's about him. And what every New Testament writer says, it's about being with Jesus. That is the reality of heaven. And Paul wraps up the whole thing here by making him the focus. And so no wonder Paul says in verse 11, Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also were doing. Well, I hope Paul's words have done the same for you as they, would as they were meant to do for Thessalonians. That you feel encouraged and built up by knowing this reality. The second coming is nothing to fear for those who walk in the day and walk in the light and who are sober and alert. The one who died is coming back for you and me so that we can be with him for eternity. What are we to learn? Lesson number one. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night for those who have rejected him, not for his followers. He comes unexpectedly like a woman in labor for those who have rejected him, but not for his followers. Number two. Even though we will not know the exact time of the Lord's return, there will be preceding events that will give us indications of His coming. The apostasy must come first. The man of lawlessness must be revealed. He will do signs and wonders from heaven. He will seek to put himself as God and take rule of this world. Number three. When the day of the Lord comes, destruction and wrath will be the outcome to those who have rejected Christ. We can't escape that reality. Peace and safety, peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly. Verse 9, for God has not destined us for wrath. That's the reality. But here's the last two most important lessons in this message. Even in the midst of judgment, his desire is that people repent. We're dealing in revelation with the, with the final scenes in many instances of heaven. And he's pouring out justice for the persecution of his people and absolute rejection of them. And he's saying, turn to me, turn to me, turn to me. That's like a parent with your kids. 
when you hand, hand out punishment, what's the ultimate goal? You're, you're, you're a just parent, but you're wanting their hearts to change. If you, someone doesn't end up in glory, it has nothing to do with the character of God. Nothing. His absolute stubbornness and rebellion of that person's heart towards Him. That's the God you serve, and don't let anyone speak to you any different. And finally, this is a cool lesson. In times of trouble, we have to encourage and comfort one another with the reality of the Lord's return. 260 chapters in the Bible, over 300 references to His end times coming. What do you think the apostles want you to know? Definition of a Christian turns away from their old form of life to turn and serve the living and true God and waits for the return of His Son. 1 Thessalonians 4.18 talks about the... He says this, You'll always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And in chapter 5, verse 11, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Church, when we're going through hard times in this world, which we are going to face even more, you're never going to escape those realities. Make this a focus of our ministry to one another. I know you're struggling with that relationship and that, re- that loss of that family member or the disease you're going through or the suffering you're going through, anything, all this stuff, the loss of your son in the car accident, the suicide that occurred lately, whatever it may be, know this, that we live as believers in this world with the reality that this is all going to be put to an end and for one day we're going to be with Jesus. Therefore, persevere, endure, put on the spiritual armor of faith, hope, and love. Live out the Christian experience in those ways as you wait for the Lord's return. This is what we're to do. This is so important. Many people ditch God. I've experienced this in my life. When people walk away from the Lord and commit apostasy, it's because they have a false sense of Reality of what the promises God has for this world as opposed to the next. Well, God was supposed to alleviate my suffering. God was supposed to do this. God was supposed to do that. And He hasn't, so He's not real. He's not worth worshiping. And God said this. No. Thessalonians were being persecuted. They're going through trials and errors. Or trials and struggles, I should say. And He says, but I'm going to give you a message of hope. He's coming back to redeem all this. These promises are for the future primarily. And rest in those. I got interviewed uh, a year and a half ago um, for my ministerial placement in the Free Methodist Church in terms of being more official as a pastor. And uh, the guy that interviewed me has now walked away from God. And so my mentor, Dan, went and took him for coffee. and said, what's going on? And he basically walked through how God has not shown up for him in this world in different ways. And our message to him is, but he never promised the things you're asking for. Everything you're asking for is is going to occur in eternity, not now. And so again, in times of trouble, we're to comfort one another with the realities of what God has promised. It's so critical, church. Put on our spiritual armor and take off the spiritual pajamas. Amen.